Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, of course it is great to become better at meditation on the cushion to get to, you know, to have your practice improve over time. That's not the real point. As Sharon Salzberg, the great meditation teacher, has said, the point of meditation is not to become a better meditator per se. It's to become a better person, to, be, to get better at, at your life. And, you know, I often for myself describe it as just becoming, you know, less of a moron. And so the point is to get up from meditation from one minute, two minute, five minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you're doing, and then put it to test in the real world with other human beings. How are you doing at the DMV? How are you doing at uh, the office? That's why on this show, we once in a while really try to dive into what is, in my view, one of, if not the most tricky and contentious social issues in in the United States of America and in many other countries in the world, which is race. And the takeaway for me from this week's guest is that race really is not a tangential issue to your meditation practice. It is the crucible in which you can Test your meditation practice. And it's not just race. It's how do you deal with difference? I mean, it can be pigmentation. It can be chromosomal. It can be ideological. Uh, no, no matter how homogeneous your, you know, from a uh, racial standpoint, your environment may be, there is, there's difference around you all the time. And how are you dealing with that? What kind of assumptions are you bringing to the table? And can meditation untangle things in a useful way for you. So Rhonda McGee is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco. She's been on this show before. If you want to hear about her fascinating upbringing, uh, go back and listen to episode 124. But in this show, we're going to talk about her new book, which is called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. And we talk about whiteness what it's like to sort of wake up to whiteness, both as a white person and uh, somebody who's non-white. We talk about something that I, I think is fascinating to discuss and we have discussed before on this show, the disutility of shame when looking at your own biases, practical ways to use meditation in uh, and mindfulness in these often incredibly painful and awkward conversations about race. We talk about some of the trickiness even among the, the tricky issues, even among uh, people who are really committed to this work, like where's the line between political correctness and what the Buddha would call right speech? We also talk about predatory listening and cancel culture. So we, we really cover a whole range of hot button issues in a really thoughtful and I find incredibly uh, practical, meaningful way. And also Rhonda's just super fun and interesting. So here we go. Here's Rhonda McGee. Great to see you. <laughs> Great to see you too. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. You're already me. laughing and smiling and we're going to be talking about <laughs> tough stuff. So that's a good sign. Yeah. It's life. Yes. Yeah. That's a useful thing to say, actually. Mm. Um, I can't believe I'm going to ask this question. I've tried never to ask this mm. question mm -hmm. because it's a cliched question, but here we go. Why did you write this book? <laughs> ah, mm. okay. I think it, this book actually kind of wrote me, in a sense. Um, I think I've been like, working toward the content of it for many, many years. You know, this is my 21st year 
teaching law uh, in San Francisco and teaching um, all those years. I've taught, you know, traditional courses like personal injury law and insurance law, um, immigration. But I've also intentionally taught courses that invite us to kind of come around, gather around the campfire and look at how race and racism intersect with law and legal history and our own lives, actually. And I think in the course of that, um, I certainly, number one, started relying very consciously on my own um, inner work to support that kind of outer work. So I was very intentionally relying all those years on my own mindfulness practice. And then at a certain point, I realized I needed to try to figure out how to bring that explicitly into the classroom to be of greater support to my students. And then not just into that classroom, but just into the legal conversation more generally. And um, so I just began exploring with that. And that was way back in 2003, two or three. Um, And then I found the network of other people who both in academia generally were interested in bringing this inner and outer work together for service and work in the world for a more refined 21st century way of thinking about what it means to be an educated human being on the one hand, but also in law in particular, because if you think about law, it's just this profound enterprise aimed at trying to, as best we can, create a structure for holding difficult conversations Mm. and dealing with difficult issues that can um, help the society cohere over time. It's so funny you say that because I think of lawyers as the people who do like <laughs> the annoying, super detailed contractual work that I really don't no, want to do and that I don't even want to talk about with them. I understand that. And yet what is it? the purpose of that is to kind of facilitate the work that you want to do in the world that, you know, yes. and it helps us. Right. Yes, so yes. it's yes, I understand that. And view. set the rules of the road for me and my employer about That's what right. I'm expected to do and what That's they uh, and what I can expect of them. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. If you. Widen the lens just a little bit. This is what we do. In law. As a law professor, I get to widen the lens a little bit and help, um, you know, help us see that the big questions and the big functions, if you will, of something that seems pretty mundane often, you know, the elements of the negligence cause of action, duty breach causation and damages, like how that really that particular as one example uh, of what law is trying to do is really a way of looking at what is what is sort of the best we can offer as a society as a means to support resolving conflicts that just occur when somebody unintentionally injures another person? This is what we got, you know, and it's it's iterative. We try and, you know, um, iterate on it over time. That's what the common law system is about, changing as we need to um, to take into, con- uh, into consideration changes in the culture, changes in our sense of what right and wrong is what's the right way to deal with um, a particular kind of suffering changes over time, whether or not to cognize or recognize a certain kind of suffering changes as society does. So so I, the beautiful thing actually about law for me is that it is this, you know, it's this human effort and human um, project that is aiming toward a kind of um, – you know, a kind of perfection, if you will, a kind of um, making the best with what we have um, in response to conflict, which is inevitable in human community. And so um, for me, this book was about bringing that 
bringing to that conversation and to that profound human project something of some tiny bit or some something of what I've been learning as I've been working to bring together this contemplative practice a set of commitments that I call mindfulness, um, bringing that together with um, the particular part of law that's that works at the intersection of uh, racism and racial injustice as it intersects with class and gender and sex orientation and all the other sorts of isms and schisms of our time. But for me, just working on that over time gave me a lot to do, but also gave me a certain way of holding these complexities that certainly helped me sustain in the work, frankly. I had a moment where I was going to leave law because I felt like if I couldn't do it in a way that was much more holistic, maybe I shouldn't be doing it. So it was partly me feeling my way to a sustainable way of, of doing this hard work, but also just feeling like, okay, it's helping me. I can see my students are suffering. I can see a lot of suffering in the world around this, that if it's helped me, maybe it might help somebody else. Around so race. That, around race and how we respond to it, racism, racial justice questions, mm-hmm. around the role of law and all of that, which has been, frankly, both perpetrator <laughs> and hope, right? It holds itself out as being the pathway to some sort of resolution. But on the other hand, if we look historically at the role of law, it's been, you know, people rightly point to it as um, really one of the the kind of core uh, forces of oppression. Codifying it, codifying the injustice. Exactly. Codifying race, codifying racial hierarchy um, at every level. Um, Three-fifths. Three-fifths right in the Constitution, and so many, it's three-fifths, um, fugitive slave clause, um, so many different places where compromises were made right at the founding, right? So we move from the lilting, beautiful language of we hold these truths to be self-evident and the Declaration of Independence, all men created equal. Uh, but this project of trying to expand on the promise of, of the Declaration and the founding documents expand on the promise that's implicit in all of that in ways that really include more and more, again and again, more and more people, right? So, um, yeah, so so there's a way that then, for me, the struggle was, I love this this work of trying to um, be in this rich, in these rich conversations around the campfire about who we are as a society and how we resolve this or that. And really seeing how law uh, can get, can really literally in ways that uh, really create a lot of pain and suffering, um, the law itself can be that vector of oppression. And so um, re- that, that um, complexity of that seemed to me to be, uh, to call for a much more profound engagement with it, not just cognitive, not just the intellectual project of, you know, what people think of law is memorization, think like a lawyer, argue certain skills, all of that, but um, another level of awareness that I, that for me, um, mindfulness and the allied disciplines, the study, you know, with, with teachers, the, the, the community of Sangha, if you will, the kind of being with other people, whether we call it Sangha or not, who are also 
working toward being more present in their daily lives and working, living with awareness. All of these different um, aspects of mindfulness practice just seemed so, for me, um, critical to me being able to stay with the complexity of trying to work in law and trying to make a difference through law. I was just talking about this with your friend and uh, colleague, John Kabat-Zinn, the yeah. legendary meditation teacher, who's talked about his own – Who I was interviewing him. He was talking about his own struggles with, yeah. you know, really just waking up to whiteness. Yeah. And yeah. I I had this thought that I suspect there – and we talked – he and I talked about this. I suspect there are maybe people out there, particularly white people who listen, who see, okay, we're, Dan's doing another episode on – race and may scan that it may scan to them as um important but not necessarily central to their own meditation practice yeah and that's another reason why i wrote the book actually Mm. because my view is as i i you know um Listeners, I was able to hear the last part of this conversation you were having with John uh, as I yeah, sat in. Just for the for record, uh, I just finished recording an episode with John. Rhonda was in the next room and could hear the conversation. Yeah. So, so, so you know, um, definitely this this piece about, on the one hand, race and racism, whiteness, different ways of kind of being with the fact of race in our lives uh, can often seem like a tangent to – what we think of as mindfulness. Um, and yet, for me, that in and of itself, that we think of it that way, is an indication that we're dealing with, you know, the legacies of racism as it's shown up in what we call mindfulness. <laughs> because, in fact, you know, if we're talking about being aware of all that is, and we know race and racism exists and has you know, not been a minor factor <laughs> in the construction of what we call this American experience and all of that and um, our identities, whether we are consciously thinking about that or not. If we know this and if we want to be more aware in our lives, the fact that what we call mindfulness has somehow not centered on this is an indication that it's grown up through the lens of whiteness. It's grown up through the lens of a piece of racialized experience. And this is not, you know, this is not meant to create a sense of shame or blame or anything. It's just to be, to wake up to what we're looking at. And so, so for me, because I, you know, felt during the, the, over the years that I've been in this beautiful conversation and community around mindfulness practice and working with John and others, um, as John was indicating in his conversation with you, I come in racialized as a, in American, you know, terminology as a black woman, uh, and racialized and cisgendered black female, um, grown up, born in North Carolina. And I always say it cause I think it matters in 1967, right? So this is my 52nd year on the planet. But born in 1967 in segregated North Carolina, where, uh, you know, the legacies of this history that we've been talking about were just not abstractions, right? We the the, the town was still quite ra- quite segregated. My kindergarten that I school class that I went to in 1972 had not been desegregated, despite the fact that Brown versus Board of Education had come out, you know, really by that time 
a generation ago, you could say, in the 50s. So here I, you know, for me, my own experience made it very clear that, you know, race and racism and that quote-unquote history was just still with us and still structuring opportunity in profound ways. Um, My grandmother, uh, who I think of as my first kind of contemplative teacher, by the way, born in 1906 in North Carolina. 1906, the early 20th century, such a clear period of like the reinstitutionalization of, or the reinstatement of, or the restoration of white supremacy following the Civil War and that brief moment of possibility that we call Reconstruction. So from the latter part of the the, um, the 19th century into the early 20th, they're really for black people like my grandmother and grandparents and the people that I, you know, sprung from in a real sense. This was a time of like profound racial oppression where, um, again, all of the kind of promises of the Reconstruction had been pulled from the bottom of, you know, the foundation that people thought we could stand on. My grandmother was only go to, able to go to school to like the second grade. Uh, again, very deeply in that kind of working class, almost like, uh, you know, peonage kind of. Um, uh, that That's playing basically the same role in society that she would have under a slave society and my grandfather as well. So picking tobacco in North Carolina uh, for much of their lives. And then by the time I come along in 1967, my grandmother is cleaning houses or cleaning one house again and again. Um, seven days a week, uh, this one home, which, again, you know, if we own homes or have our own home right now, we realize you don't actually need somebody to clean from nine to five um, every day. That's a way of maintaining this I, this caste, this racialized caste. So my grandmother's life then, I, I grew up watching her find a way to center herself before she went off to do that work. She didn't call it mindfulness, but of course, but it of course, it has so much in common with what we do call mindfulness. Deep commitment, discipline of like uh, becoming aware, being with oneself as a ground for how it is that one lives in whatever circumstances present themselves to us, relates to whatever shows up. So in my mind, that's one of the reasons that she could get up in the morning, do that practice, get us off to preschool, school, wherever we needed to go at the time, and then go and do this work, but do it in a way that didn't um, cut off her ability to to have heart, to care for even, you know, the children that she had helped raise in this one family over the years, as one example. And then it also, I could see, gave her a sense of her worth, such that she could go out and be a member of the community. She had been called to the ministry herself, actually. So she's cleaning houses on the one hand. She's also helping um, teach and support sort of spiritual, just sort of getting by, if you will, with backs up against the wall, helping people get through difficulty. So seeing my grandmother, um, whose whole life had been like really limited by the ceilings placed on people like me, um, by this this system of, of of white supremacy and racial capitalism, frankly, um, that depended and still does on 
um, you know, ways of systematically kind of limiting the pie, you know, keeping certain people out so that others can have more. Um, So because I was, you know, very, very, I was formed in that. Uh, Finding myself eventually fortunate to come along when I did, middle of the civil rights movement, in a sense, um, therefore a beneficiary of changes in law that would enable me to be here with you, Mm -hmm. to go to school at the University of Virginia, which was not a place created for people like me, whether female of any race, certainly not black female, but to go to school at the University of Virginia, take three degrees, uh, undergrad, sociology, master's, and law, did uh, served in the military, um, you know, became a lieutenant in the military, uh, in the army. Um, I did a lot of different things to kind of take advantage of opportunities that my people had not had before my generation, frankly. Uh, and and yet, it was always clear to me that um, in moving into these places where people like me had previously not been invited or included or given access, in fact, had been systematically denied, excluded, um, uh, prevented from 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 uh, benefiting from. And, you know, it was just sort of clear to me that that in those places places of opportunity, there was a kind of unawareness. There was like a, you know, it was his own kind of bubble. And for so, uh, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, that kind of, they call him the towering kind of social public intellectual of the 20th century and certainly a person whose work has helped us over the years understand race and racism in this culture. You know, he talked about race and the color line, that line separating really whites who were systematically privileged under our system for so long from everybody else in different ways. Um, You know, that would be the problem of the 20th century, the negotiation of that line and the query whether it's still the problem of the 21st. But really he was um, also, I think, instrumental in helping us see that being embedded in contexts where these sorts of trainings and conditionings and Barriers and opportunities are so deeply infused in the kind of the air we're breathing, the water we're swimming in that we kind of almost can't see, creates a kind of consciousness. And, um, you know, for him in particular, he talks about the dual or double consciousness that comes when you're navigating. You're moving from world, one world in which is very clear that you are not in the other but then you're moving into that other. So you're becoming a kind of a code switcher, right, to use that language, or somebody who can kind of see through different lenses. I can operate in the white dominant world. I can operate in, in yeah. my uh, community of, of origin. origin. Yeah. Absolutely. And exactly. And that is becomes an invitation and something in a, in a, in a time that I grew up in where we were sort of given this opportunity to operate in the white world. Um, Certainly, I wanted to take advantage of that in a certain sense. You know, I wanted to, to the degree it would alleviate some of the basic pressure against um, basically being able to make a living and mm-hmm. take care and all of that. Right. So it, there was this opportunity place or, the, or a dynamic around it. Like, yes, 
there is going to be this invitation to go into this different kind of world, succeed in that world as best as possible. We can do these things. And um, frankly, I think for people to succeed in America, no matter where you're from, no matter what your culture of origin, this has been the kind of a hidden, you know, sort of piece of the dynamic. It's like, where did you come from? How do you fit in from wherever you came, wherever your people came, right? Because not all of us were immigrants from somewhere, but most of us were, if we go, you know, trace it far enough back. So this process by which we, we find our way in the American context has for all of us actually involved some kind of navigation around racism and race and fitting ourselves in. But if you're in the dominant kind of white um, racialized um, project, if you will, racialization project, it can be it, it, it has become kind of hard for people to see the operation of it because it is dominant. What do you mean by racialization project? <laughs> so that's I think I know what you mean, but yeah. that race is a construct. It's, it's a not construct. actually a biological fact. Yeah. And it's a construct. It's being constructed in different ways in different places in different times. And the in sociology sometimes, forgive me from you for using some cliches or some some you know, some language that is more germane to these professions. But in sociology, this term um, racialization and thinking of it as kind of a social project by which we create race, races, the felt sense of what race is, right? Often without acknowledging that that's what's going on, right? In fact, almost never acknowledging that that's what's going on. But just as a legacy of our culture and, um, and the ways we've been given to think about who we are, who matters, who this country, what this experiment is supposed to be about. Again, often implicit, not usually explicit, but sometimes explicit. And so um, the projects of racialization by which something called race has been created and maintained and given meaning and given, you know, life – um, you know, are operating on all kinds of different levels. So, um, again, if we go back to what we where we have already named about the kind of structural inputs of this that come from law, right? The Constitution alluded to the different terms in the Constitution, but then right after the Constitution, the very first immigration law, right, the 1790 Immigration, the Immigration Act of 1790, in that very first immigration law, Whiteness is privileged, like, so as a basis for becoming a naturalized citizen in the U.S. And many of us aren't aware of that. Those of us who are aware of it haven't been given a lot of support for thinking about what that has meant historically and what, um, what that might mean for the challenges we face today. To look at the fact that we, you know, in the one breath created this constitutional um, democracy that at least created a possibility of rights being expanded to to all, but um, but it was clearly not at the founding meant to extend to all of us. And to just to underscore it, like the very first federal immigration act, you know, makes clear that um, that whiteness is a prerequisite for becoming a naturalized citizen. So this is 1790. We're still in the period of slavery and enslavement. Then we have the Civil War, of course. And the 
reconstruction amendments, right, by which we kind of remake the entire constitutional project to actually abolish slavery with the 13th, except, of course, if you committed a felony, so we know we never really abolished slavery, but in a way. Because an enormous number of <laughs> often black males were locked up for crimes either they didn't commit or that maybe shouldn't have been felonies or right. maybe shouldn't have had the sentences they had, and then we have now the prison industrial complex. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a way in which we have legacies that, that were built into the 13th Amendment, frankly. There's a great it's, documentary called exactly. 13th by uh, – what is her name? The woman is who directed – Ava. Ava DuVernay. Yes. And it's on Netflix. Exactly. The 13th. We'll, so if people want to we'll put a link to that, that in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. So the 13th, great, beautiful ending, abolishing slavery in a way, but also not entirely. 14th Amendment we all know. Oof. The great, maybe, project of ongoing liberation and aspirational kind of um, freedom-making for us, giving us the Equal Protection Clause. That has enabled everything from the women's rights movement to the um, LGBTQ plus, right, beautiful set of rights and movement uh, that has come with the movement uh, for, for liberation uh, for sexual orientation minorities. And, and so the 14th Amendment, again, it's like crazy, tremendous way of sort of saying this is kind of a different project now, or at least creating the possibility for radically different levels of inclusion happening right after the Civil War. And then the 15th Amendment, the right to vote. But of course, we all know that though all of this happened again, 1865 you know, to 1877, whew, or right around that time period when the Reconstruction ends, those beautiful promises with these new amendments that could have re- – did reconstitute us in a certain sense were kind of shut down. And they were shut down kind of intentionally by the, you know, the white dominant forces that continued to control the Supreme Court on the one hand, the Congress, um, the executive branch on the other. And so we had to have a civil rights movement to say, come on, these, four, these amendments actually did mean to change things such that we would include – more and more of us in this constitutional experiment. But that's always been such a contested truth. And the dominance of whiteness and of white experience has made it all just that much harder for us to engage with. Because, again, and this is where mindfulness can come in, because if this consciousness is is hidden, if the, well, if the experience of the, the kind of Racial specificity of experience is not named, right? If we don't see that if, you know, Congress is almost entirely white for most of our history, if the presidency is almost entirely white, just to speak about the race and leave the gender aside for a minute, we're not, if we don't see the Supreme Court, right, we're not able to really think about that as like, you know, a white specific view of all of these things as opposed to a more we tend to we've been given to think of, you know, whiteness is almost like racelessness. Like that's that's the human experience. (laughs) And what we're trying to see more clearly and what I think mindfulness can actually help us see more clearly is that that's 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 the confusion we've 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 all been raised up in. It's literally confusion. It's literally a kind of ignorance <laughs> to think that 
you know, these kind of so-called race-neutral institutions don't have racial specificity. Racial specificity that is born of the dominant racial identity and experience of those who succeed in those systems. So if that's been true for law and academia, as it has been, mindfulness, of course, as well, is another institution that's kind of grown up in the society, um, created by beautiful human beings, my friends and yours that we love, but who, as le- again, as a legacy of our time and our culture and our history, have been disproportionately, the leaders of mindfulness, disproportionately white. Look at the roster of guests on the show. You know, I mean, we do our best, yeah, but not good enough. And is bias a part of that? Absolutely. Bias is part of the human experience. So, um, and it's structure. Bias, yes, it's right? structure because yeah. I think we've had a structure in this culture where um, the luxury, uh, what what I think has been wrongly viewed as a luxury, in fact, is a human right to explore the mind and train the mind, yeah. has been uh, one that was available mostly to white Whole food shoppers. Um, and again, I say that with no judgment because right, right. I like to joke, I am – a white whole food shopper who lives on the Upper West Side. So no no judgment. And I think yeah. shame is a really pernicious thing to introduce into this discussion. Yeah. Um, but anyway, carry on. I, I do think, yes, the, the the whiteness does carry on. You were about to say – you were about to talk about yeah. the role of whiteness in the mindfulness community. It's true, yeah. right? It's so – thank you for just naming what you, you just named because, again, the, the shame piece is part of what gets in the way of us naming what it is that might be – seen here. And so it is important to kind of, um, this is again where mindfulness can come in, really to help us just um, open up and cultivate the capacity to just see what there is to be seen, Um, putting aside judgment for the, at least for the moment, um, long enough so that we can really better apprehend and um, relate with greater purposefulness and intentionality with what is. Um, So for me, yeah, mindfulness is, is an incredibly useful practice for waking up to these realities. And, um, and again, I do think that the opportunity, if you will, to understand how, how deeply embedded we all are in a racialized world, right? Is something that mindfulness is really perfectly attuned to support us with, but it hasn't been presented that way because we've been so deeply embedded in a racialized world. We can't see it. It's often used of the, I think you talked about this too, the fish can't see the water. Exactly, exactly. Just as a resource for white people, there's a I've mentioned this before on the show. Um, there's a podcast. It's called Seeing White. It was recommended to me by a former guest on the show, several mm-hmm. mul- multiple appearances on the show, and also mm-hmm. a very popular teacher on the 10% Happier app, 7A Selassie. Mm-hmm. Really recommended I listen to this podcast. If you want to find it, the podcast itself is actually called Seen, S-C-E-N-E, Seen on Radio. And so that's the name yeah. of the podcast. You mm-hmm. search for that. And up will come a couple of series they've done. One is called Seeing White. The other is called Men. So the host is a man, a white guy mm-hmm. who has looked at 
whiteness, mm -hmm. which was naming a thing that I think most white people aren't even really aware of. Right, whiteness, Because yeah. as you said before, I think white people th think of themselves as the absence of race. Yeah. Not consciously, probably, right, right, right. but un un subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And then he also did something about um, maleness, uh, yeah. which is both of them are excellent. Um, it was interesting because I, I think I've said this too on the podcast, so I apologize for the repetition. But I, I shared it with the entire staff at Nightline. And the white people on the staff were freaking – they were like, this is so good. <laughs> And then my black <laughs> colleagues were like, there is nothing new here. Right, of course. <laughs> so, but that in and of That's itself is a good data point. Exactly. Right, because this is, um, this is something that white people need to wake up to. And, and why, uh, just to get back to the beginning of the conversation, mm -hmm. why I don't believe this is tangential to the project of waking up writ large, meditation, 10% happier, whatever you want to call it. It is for all the reasons that you just pointed out, which is you're waking up to a fundamental, often unseen structure or set of structures within our society, useful because it's reality and we, if we're engaged in meditation, we purport to want to see it, reality, <laughs> and also because if we want to be useful and helpful in our world, if we believe in the other wing of awakening, one wing is wisdom, the other is compassion, mm -hmm. then it's useful to see the structure so that we can be helpful. But it's also useful just on a much more down-to-earth, moment-to-moment level. If you're interested in seeing all of your neuroses, because that's what we do in meditation practice, well, try <laughs> taking a look at whatever thoughts pop into your head around race yes. and get ready to be humbled. Yes. And this is true, by the way, for white people, black people. All of us. Any pigmentation. Any people. Because we're all racist. Because <laughs> No, I mean, and I mean that because – and this is not a – it sounds controversial, yeah, but yeah. it isn't. Yeah. If you know anything about the way we evolved, we evolved for bias. Yeah. So this is why I think shame is so useless in this context because yeah. we evolved uh, in a – homogeneous environment where we're in our little villages and we needed to be able to tell the difference between often dangerous outsiders and our own folks. Mm -hmm. And so we have bias. We need to be able to tell the difference between a snake and a stick too. <laughs> yeah. we, the mind is quickly sorting in an environment of Absolutely. lots of inputs. And Absolutely. So go ahead, take a look at how your mind sorts. <laughs> Exactly. And you get ready to to be to see all of the yeah. things you think about yourself, how yeah. high minded and fair you are, and put that to the test by using mindfulness to see how you yeah. react and what what kind of judgments you come to upon seeing a face of a different pigmentation, whatever color you are. Anyway, yeah. I'll shut up. No, no. Thank you for riffing on that because it's so, again, bringing it down to earth. It's it's in us. Um, Peggy McIntosh, who wrote a beautiful essay on, um, you know, white, white privilege, unpacking the, the invisible knapsack, right? So looking at whiteness and, and, and the privilege aspect of it that can come, can come um, with white experience and other types of experience as well. But her essay is specifically on that. She also talks about how systems, how this is about not just about individual predilection and individual psycho psychology, right, which is the temptation in our culture, hyper-individualizing it all. How am I? How good am I? What am I doing? And so therefore, again, to be sort of defended against the idea that we're all that we have anything to work on because it can seem like a personal attack. And I do think it's very helpful then to think about uh, the system, systemic structural pieces of this, including whiteness as a construct and a structure that all human beings who are brought into, let's say, this culture. I do know something about other cultures, but this is my culture. 
we're all invited into some kind of a negotiation and relationship with whiteness, you know, some sort of way of. So whiteness is is um, is I think of it as not just about a, a way of thinking about the identity of some racialized people. OK, so white identity is is a maybe a piece. It's a sort of Venn diagram sort of thing happening here in my mind. So how one identify, identifies oneself through language of race and in recognition of the fact that there's a, a racialization called whiteness is, is one piece, I think, of whiteness. Whiteness is also kind of this philosophical idea of who matters and who doesn't and of a kind of a way, it's a legacy of white supremacy that has helped structure notions of success, notions of, you know, productivity. Um, that again, all of us, if we've been successful, have figured out how to navigate, even if we're not racially identified. Well, so, 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 uh, let me just stop you on that for a second because I think there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. First of all, I've always had some problem with the use of white supremacy as a phrase because yes. I hear that and I think of the people mar- marching in Charlottesville. Right. Those are white supremacists. You right. use the term white supremacy, and many <laughs> academics use the term white supremacy Somewhere. to talk about whiteness being the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just call that out because, you know, when we can get into this, but yes. I think there are many reasons why. One of the reasons why I keep coming back to shame and thinking about it in the context of political polarization and yeah. racial polarization that we're seeing in this country right now is that shame shuts down. Reason, <laughs> yeah, right, and disables people's ability. It seems to me, based on no evidence other than just looking at how it plays out in the larger culture and looking at how it plays out in my mind. When I feel shame, I'm not, in a, I'm defensive, right. and I'm looking for people to agree with me, and I'm not really thinking in the most broad, fair-minded way. Yeah. And I agree, and I worry that white supremacy is just like unhelpful yeah, in that context as a term. Anyway, yeah. the, but the point you were actually making there is that part of whiteness is this let's succeed. Uh, I think what you're saying, I think what I hear you're saying, mm-hmm. and I want to draw you out on it, is yeah, yeah. let's succeed. Let's uh, – it's, 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 it's kind of um, uh, not quite satisfied with what's happening right now. I'm going to add – I need to get the next thing. That's – Urgency. Uh, yes, the urgency. Productivity. Allied with capitalism, right? So right. it's kind of a – but, it's hard to pull that, the two apart. Yes, yes. But is that a white thing or is that a human thing? Because uh, that's a good question. And 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 I because I've, I've heard this critique of whiteness and I've always had this question of like, <laughs> look, I look at the Chinese and you know the, uh, yeah. the, they they seem pretty, uh, notwithstanding the nominally capitalist, I mean, a communist government, they seem to be adapting adopting capitalism with a robustness. Is that because of colonialism or is there something innate? To the human, I mean, the Buddha was talking about suffering being this. It had many facets, but one of the facets was there's a hungry ghost in you that can never be satiated. Yeah. And the, the, he was talking about this stuff in the context of sub uh, the Indian subcontinent yes. two, 2,600 years ago, before I believe whiteness was that much of a thing in that part of the world. So yes, yes. I, I wonder about this critique. So I'll, I'll yeah. Stop oh no, no, no! I love this. So. I'm just going to say that we're going to end this conversation and only just be beginning to talk about all the, the things that we might, right? I mean, we're just going to be getting to, like, the beginning, beginning of some juicy stuff. Um, and because it is this rich, everything that we're talking about could be its own, you know, seminar, you know, practice, 
commitment. <laughs> um, because whether we call it whiteness or dominance, I mean, it's whiteness because, in a sense, in this culture, um, the dominant class has been racialized as white. And all, you know, in the kind of capitalist structure, first with the clearing of the land um, and on and on, all everything that we've built on top of it has happened to benefit um, that dominant racial group. So, yeah, I mean, it is a feature of maybe dominance, not only whiteness, but in this culture that dominance has has kind of, um, again, fused with this. Uh, been, been colored, if you will, with these notions of, frankly, whiteness. And so it is, It is. I think I, I appreciate you kind of troubling this, this kind of um, way of naming this as whiteness as such, um, as a kind of, um, because it can, it can maybe be, um, uh, it, can, it can, we might need to refine it or we might do better with a bit more nuance around this. But really, if we think about um, the patterns uh, by which dominance constructs consciousness and recognize that that's a culturally and contextually specific set of processes and projects. We're in a culture and a context where whiteness has been, white supremacy, the history of that legacy of laws and cultural commitments that said in every important institution, whites matter most. That is what I mean by white supremacy. It's like, it's it. Yes, you see it in Charlottesville, but I wish we only saw it in Charlottesville. This this the legacies of this very deep commitment that we as a culture made, and we can point out. Well, I've tried to you know we, in this conversation we've surfaced some of the touchstones where you can say, well, here's an example of it, and there's another example, you know, in immigration law, in constitutional law, in who got to go to University of Virginia, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many ways that our culture just really gave itself over to white supremacy and we know it. And so and and so for me it it really is is kind of useful to kind of be able to name that and yet as you point out shame. Ugh, again, a whole another seminar, a whole another conversation. I actually think rather than sort of I think part of what we're up against is uh we don't we haven't really explored shame as much as we might, because as you point out, anything that seems to get us anywhere near shame um, threatens humiliation, threatens all of the profound human neurobiological defenses against, um, you know, being uh, uh, rendered um, vulnerable to a sense that, uh, you know, I don't matter and I'm worthless. Right. All of the different ways we think about what shame does and humiliation does Comp- are at risk because of the way our culture has not seen the legacies of our history or has, um, you know, been resistant to just, again, again, some of it is not conscious, I think, the, the resistance. But as if we don't see, as we talked about before, the white specificity of all these things. Then yes, defendedness and defensiveness is predictable, psychologically predictable. It's kind of a cognitive dissonance. Someone comes along and says, "Well, you know, whatever the place, University of Virginia is predominantly white and has the legacies of whiteness running all the way through it, and maleness, of course, too." 
if you haven't been thinking about that at all, that can seem like a cognitively dissonant thing. Yeah, why would you have been thinking about it? Why because would you? your whole life has been just in this. You've been in the in the water. You can't see it. Yeah. Um, and then somebody comes along and points it out to you, and you're like resistant, defensive, and oh, feeling yeah. shame, and yes, feeling threatened, yes, yes. and feeling vulnerable. And you don't want that, and of course you don't. I mean, so but for me, uh, you know, really bringing mindfulness to these things we call these this this, this complex of emotions that. Or touching around what we call shame is actually quite important. And a whole, we could do a whole lot of work on that, and I think we should to to really be able to do this kind of work that we're talking about. Really invites and calls is calling on us as a culture and as a mindfulness culture to figure out how to um, how to relate to the this complex of uh, emotions and, and reactivities that we call shame. How to relate to that with 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 more skillfulness. Because for me, there's at least a, a kind of something to look at around neurotic shame, which is just about like anytime any of this comes up, I feel shame. It's not about me, not about what I've done, not about on the one hand, versus a shame that might appropriately call forth inquiry around what have I been not willing to see? What have I been not willing to do? Where are my responsibilities here? Right. The kind of shame that we is raised up to kind of feel like as a human being with agency and wanting to, again, as you pointed to, the compassionate wing of the practice, wanting to do less harm. How have I been not willing to see some things? Now, I don't mean to say that shame necessarily might attach to that, but some something, some element of quickening that says, oh, I actually have some work to do here. Maybe we don't want to call it shame, whatever that word is. But so there's a way in which um, I think mindfulness can help us recognize the ethics of um, what it means to be alive. Uh, this idea of karma, I don't use that word very much. But if you read the teachings of the Buddha, this idea that our actions in the world you know, are relevant. And to me, this is partly what we're talking about, the ethics of what it means to not just become more aware, but to live with awareness and to do that in a way that ideally, I think, minimizes suffering. That calls on us to be a little bit more robust, a little bit more, um, to have a little bit more what I call like fortitude or resolve or um, this deeper capacity. You know, we're not we're not kids anymore, to be able to turn toward things that really would otherwise trigger us, make us reactive, maybe threaten this shame reactivity. But rather than saying, okay, I can't go there, instead to say, actually, maybe I couldn't have gone there at a different point in my life, but I've been doing some work. And I probably can go, I can let a little bit more of this in, just enough to see where my own work, what my responsibility, what my right action here might be around um, this thing called race and racism. More 10% Happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but... 
The data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. You talk about doing the work. Yeah. And, and, and this book is not just for white people. It's for all people. It's for all of us. Right. For sure. So what would the work look like? And how does mindfulness help? Yeah. I mean, so um, I think it is just what we've been talking about as a part of it. Um, recognizing, accepting, investigating with as much non-attachment. I've just used that RAIN acronym that is a famous teaching acronym um, in the work of mindfulness. Um, RAIN, R-A-I-N, as a way of just summarizing what it is that, in some sense, mindfulness uh, practice and and the allied disciplines is meant to give us in our world the capacity to recognize, to see what's happening, to accept for the moment what it is without being at war with reality, as uh, some of our teachers have put it, Um, right? In other words, we might discern, uh, it might come to some discerning judgment about what to do, but for the moment, we just want to accept it long enough to say, this is actually a feature of this world that I might not have seen or might need to learn a little bit more about. So recognize, accept, I, the investigate piece. Pausing, taking in, expending what might be called enough right effort to see where am I being reactive? What is And what is the specificity of my reaction? Am I getting angry? Am I afraid? What's underneath this anger? Like what? What is what? What am I really feeling threatened by here? And um, what are the different moves I'm kind of subtly doing that I might not have even been willing to, been able to see, or willing to see, or willing able to name, or willing to name? What are the ways I might be not wanting to admit the kind of feeling state, the you know what's happening underneath the reactivity, what's happening underneath the resistance, what's happening underneath the denial. Um, so recognize, accept, investigate, again, with as much compassion as possible, all of it. Like, for me, that whew, that call toward compassion is the only really right, it seems like the only right way to be with all of this. Because we didn't create this world. You know what I mean? Like, we all inherited the world with all of these so-called projects going on with race and racism and sexism and right. Now, that's not we're to not, say that we're not also not responsibility for evolution. Exactly. That too. 
And yet that is also that's true. All that's true. And we are we do have some agency yeah. and we do do right. <laughs> so it's like this both and yes. that radical complexity yes. of yes. it all. Yes. So to me, when you see the radical complexity of all of that, you know, compassion is like other you know, others who've sat with these sorts of things over time, it's very clear to me, compassion is the only right response, starting with ourselves, starting with ourselves. Because, of course, we're going to, you know, flinch and ouch and feel, um, you know, when I see, for example, the way or have seen and do see the way that my own upbringing trained my ears for English. And so that when I moved to San Francisco from the South and suddenly found myself in the DMV or on Fillmore Street having, you know, hearing people speaking languages that I didn't recognize as English, there was that part of me that was sort of like, you know, reactive. Felt a little bit of like, you know, is this, you know, is this okay? All of that. I'm not proud to say that that those were some of the reactions I have had. When um, thinking I was in one kind of place where one kind of language would be the, the, the what I would be, what my ears would have to work with and to find myself like either having people speak a language that I don't understand and whatever can come up with that. Well, what are they talking about? And are they talking about me? And am I safe here? Whatever that is. All of that. I kind of got that honestly growing up in North Carolina and Virginia, where in the particular places in, that I lived at that time, we didn't hear a lot of different languages around us. Um, my identity is tied to me feeling like I'm an open liberal. Like I, you know, I don't, of course I want to, I want to, I learned French, you know, I want to learn the languages, but am I a human being whose biology and neurobiology kind of makes me prefigure and cognitively predict what is going to be present and then react when something shows up that I'm, that I didn't expect? Yeah. So for me, the work looks like that. The work looks like, recognizing, noticing, oh, that, and, and off, it's very embodied, Dan. It's like, it's about being present to the body. Like, it's really literally a move that can happen. <laughs> like, when something shows up that we're not used to, that we weren't trained to see or trained to appreciate or trained to accept or be ready to open up to. And today it comes up in so many different ways. It's it's the intersection of race with gender and, and sex orientation and class and, and immigration status. It's just, it's coming up all the time if we're willing to see it and to see that that's what it is. We might not realize or be willing to name that it's really kind of another legacy of being trained to in, in patterns of dominance and to relate to dominance and to and I say relate to dominance again to invite inquiry around how all of us who want to succeed in this context are being invited to relate to dominance and patterns of dominance in ways that imbibe it and play it out. This is why these projects are not um, the projects of racial justice, the projects of waking up to racism, the work of becoming um more committed to minimizing harm in these areas is for all of us. Because, again, you see it all the time. The mere fact that you hire cops of color doesn't mean you won't have, not to pick on cops, but just, right, the mere fact that you diversify any institution does not mean, like by fate, what we call in the diversity work, facial diversity. Just you open the door and you look around the table and you see 
okay, we 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 don't have only whites here. Does that mean that the processes, policies, work of that institution will necessarily change? It's actually not that simple. We know that the system can select for people who look different but who have been trained to to succeed by imbibing and playing out practices You're of still fish in the same water. Yes. You're still in the larger cultural context. You are. And you might look a little different, but you, you, you know, the people in that place are still being rewarded for maintaining the status quo and maintaining those patterns of dominance and oppression. But let's just, because you, you took us pretty far down the road <laughs> in terms of, you know, where the rubber hits the road, what yeah. we can do to use right. our practice to to explore all this, and you were talking about mm-hmm. rain, the recognizing yeah. A is accepting or allowing, the mm-hmm. I is investigating, the N is, well, sometimes it's non-identification, um, like, so in other words, seeing that it's not, it's not, you can't, whatever's going on, you can't really claim ownership. It's not, it's not really about you, and we don't yeah. want you to, to make a new story, like, I am this, whatever, I'm this white, privileged, I am this, whatever it is. Non-identification, holding it with some lightness. Um, sometimes um, non-attachment is used. Sometimes, um, what's the other word? Nurturing is another way people are thinking about the end these days. Um, for me, how again, however you bring in that compassionate piece, I'm happy to put it there with the end. But yeah. in, right, this idea of like all of the rain process is to be held with a kind of commitment to being with the, the, the suffering that comes up when we have the wherewithal, uh, the steadfastness to stay in these difficult places of inquiry. Uh, so, yeah, in can sometimes be about nurturing as well. So I think that's incredibly useful. But just to take it even another level cl- closer to sort of pr- practicality, um, would you recommend that we – I mean, I, I've taken – I took a course on race and the Dharma mm-hmm. taught in part by the aforementioned Seven A Selassie. Yes. And one of the things they recommended was to sort of take a day or even a – five to ten minute section where you just really pay close attention to whatever thoughts come into your mind based on who's in front of you. Yeah. Um, or what, what kind of practices yeah. that would even take this into yeah. in, into the doable uh, zone that yeah. you, would you recommend? I love that you just named that and you're asking me this question um, because there are specific practices. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book to help us think together about and elaborate Uh, different ways that we might wake ourselves up more to these things. Um, There's infinite number. Once you decide, I think the first and most important thing is to make a decision, have an intention to bring awareness to this aspect of our experience. Then there again, like anything else, there's so many different ways you can do it. Um, I asked my students, for example, to take one of these implicit associations test, right, where you can look online and get at least a sense. Yeah, those are controversial. I know they're controversial. Yeah, Yeah, I'm well aware. Um, And yet I think um, it's even with the controversy worth looking at, worth um, being in that conversation, Um, being in the conversation around how pervasive bias is and how, how, again, our brains are structured for bias, as you put it before, and how, therefore – as best as we try to become aware, it's it's a it's a challenge for us as humans. It's an onion. Yeah. And it may make you cry. 
<laughs> so yes. So, uh, so different yeah, ways yeah. of like really looking at um, bias and figuring out as best we can where we're biased. Practice for recognizing um, stories, telling stories, I think is very, very important. Um, and this book is very much about that, actually. Um, it's about normalizing a kind of contemplative storytelling as part of the practice. So, Does that mean like opening up about moments where you had a, th- a thought? Exactly, was- like I just did about like I'm on the streets of – or I'm at the DMV and I hear all these languages and I'm like, whoa. That's a kind of a race, what I call a race story. That can be a. I'll give you one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've told the story in the podcast before. I may have, but I last year I took my son to see Frozen. Yes. Uh, it's about Norwegians. So yes. They're largely. I white. haven't actually uh, seen. I okay. mean, no, yeah, I, t- I, I, I yeah. took him to see the play. Thank you for letting me know. Right. I'm like, yeah. what? Who is Elsa? Okay, yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I took him to see the play. He'd already seen the movie, but mm-hmm. my wife and I took him to see the play. I work for Disney, mm-hmm. so um, it's 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 a it's a yeah. it's a must. Um, yeah. And in the play, in the first scene or something like that, or one of the first scenes, Elsa and Anna are prancing around the stage, and then their parents come on. And in the play, the parents are black. And my first thought was, who are these people? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. What? Who, who – I don't – I couldn't compute it. And I was yeah. like, oh. Oh. That, and I think it was not long after I had taken Seb's – the course that she co-taught. I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting moment. Exactly. I don't really want to see that. But actually, I've been put into a mind state where I was a little bit more welcoming of it. And so, yeah, the shame was all there. It's like how you, you know, told myself a bunch of stories about how racist I was. But that was like, oh, this is interesting. I didn't invite that thought. Right. So where does that come from? Where does it come and, from? And there's a quote, actually, that I'm talking a lot about Seb. But yeah, um, yeah. She, she was, I think, the, the automatic footer on her emails for a while, which is something like, you're not thinking your thoughts, you're thinking the culture's thoughts, mm. which is a yeah. quote from somebody uh, who, I, whose yeah, name yeah, I can't yeah, remember yeah, right yeah. now. But I was like, yeah, so somewhere yes. that got embedded. Obviously, it's just confusing that it, whatever race their parents would have been if they weren't white, it, w- <laughs> it would take you a minute. Take you but a nonetheless, minute. I, I went quickly to, they're definitely not the parents. <laughs> right, who are these people? Yes. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean it's embarrassing, yeah. but it's also like it happened. It happens a lot. It happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, and a, a version of what you just described can happen any any given day in America somewhere, where, for example, a group of four people might show up, or even a couple, for a reservation, but they happen to be of different races at a restaurant. Right. So show up at the reser- reservation desk, as has happened to me, um, as part of a group that is. Not monoracial. Um, it can happen that the person behind the desk will look down, look up, call for the party. You're here. We're here. They look down and look. They're still waiting, looking for the party. The party, if it does not show up in that monoracial, what I've been trained, what the culture has trained me to see as the two people at a top, a tabletop, right, or the group of four. They're all looking from all walks of life. It's going to happen. Um it just takes a minute for people to realize these four people will be seated together and have dinner together, despite the fact that they're coming from these radically. So, again, yeah, um, mindfulness is bringing awareness, creating some space for looking at what we know in our bones about how we are in this all the time. We are in these systems and the systems are in us, as Peggy McIntosh did say. We are in these systems and they are in us. So, yes, these thoughts are coming up unbidden and re- and again how what was it like in the body 
that moment, <laughs> that moment when they show up on stage or that moment when, you know, uh, we hear uh, some some language and we're like, wait, I didn't I don't know about this. I'm just using this as one example. Looking back in what is happening in the body is important. It's such an important kind of source. I've, I've guided folks in doing these kinds of reflections, telling these kinds of race story moments, you know, and, and creating more spaciousness around it, noticing if there's a bit of that shame complex coming in or whatever it is, recognizing, accepting. Let's just create space where we can name that we know something about this and through that um, dissipate some of the kind of resistances and kind of places where we get stuck and hooked and um, shut down and confused and, you know, willing to stay ignorant. Uh, I'm thinking about a, a workshop where I was in conversation and inviting this kind of reflection. Um, often what I'll do is ask people, you know, what comes up for you when you're invited to look at race in mixed company, for example, or, um, to look at a resume, think about the last time you saw a resume. Did you make any assumptions based on the name you saw or when the email comes in? Um, or did you have a moment when you had a notion that this person was of one background and you learned that they weren't and what was going on there? So these, they're back, this is a way of also answering your question. What are the uh, many, there are many different ways that we can sort of challenge ourselves to, to kind of break us out of the trance, if you will, of the culture's trainings about these things. Invite that kind of challenge. So in this one in, in session in which I was inviting that for the group, I had a young white man say, I'm noticing here for the first time that whereas up until this moment, if somebody had asked me what comes up for me when I see racism or think about race, I would have said, I don't see race, and I don't, I don't know anything about it. I haven't seen white racialized man in his thirties. His view, his his report in that moment was he was in the practice, the practice of this spacious, compassionate space for just looking at the very subtle ways that when this topic comes up, things start to happen inside. Even if the face doesn't change, something is going on. What he was able to see and name was that whereas he traditionally said, I haven't seen and I don't know, there was a movement in the direction of not seeing and not wanting to know, avoidance, which he hadn't really slowed down enough and given himself enough space to name and recognize. To me... On the one hand, that's like a very subtle thing. It's not like he's going out and changing the world, right? He's not rewriting the law. But that level of awareness and to be able to have a, some place where you can say, this is true in my life, that most of my life I've said I don't know anything about race is something I, I guess I got to turn and learn from other people. In this moment, I realize I actively have avoided this conversation. When it comes up, I actively clench and move away. To me, to see that is an opening. That is That can change a trajectory. We don't know what follows from that. And so that, to me, is really how mindfulness can support us in the work. What about speech? Yeah. So I think a lot about political correctness. Yeah. And I think there are really compelling arguments on both sides. Yeah. Um, 
How do you think about political correctness as it relates to the Buddhist concept of right speech, which is often described as, you know, say that which is true and which is useful at the right time? Exactly. Mm, Good question. I know you bring me the good questions here. Um, (laughs) I save them all for you. (laughs) Thank you, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, every moment of this kind of work is an opportunity to be reflecting in a certain sense on what this means actually as a lived thing and living in some sense, like whatever whatever way we're trying to make this real. Um, absolutely what you just described in terms of, um, you know, really trying to speak the truth and trying to speak in a way that, um, I mean, often this idea of like not being uh, disagreeable is what can get into the conversation around. Is it right speech to to kind of um, call us into conversation about these things? If it, um, well, this again specifically, you're talking about the intersection between political correctness, political correctness, this sort of way we have in this culture sought to heighten our awareness of how language can do harm by almost sort of creating these codes of what we can say and what we can't. And then on the other hand, like, you know, right speech, which is a kind of a, I think, a more radical invitation to trying to to be present with what is and speak the truth as best as possible. And sometimes that aligns with what we call political correctness, and sometimes it may, may not. You know, it's more than I can really unpack in this moment, but what I can say is um, I do think that, for me, everything comes back to what am I doing this moment to seek to act from and speak from the ground of um, being as clear as I can and seeking to minimize harm at the same time or not to, to do no harm as best I can. I want to be clear. I don't want to do harm. Um, I might do harm. I know this. To live in the world is to do some harm, right? We destroy things, put our foot down somewhere, we're crushing the world. So, I mean, you know, there's got to be radical humility around it or else we can't do anything. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to say things that will ruffle feathers, et cetera, et cetera. But if we are, you know, willing to acknowledge when what we have tried and put into the world as best we can from the place of wanting to speak the truth and not to hurt. Sometimes it does, right? Recognizing the difference between intent and impact. Again, certain such an important feature of this work of justice. There is a difference between I've tried, speaking the truth, I'm trying to speak rightly. Whoo, somebody heard something in that that was hurtful. Humility and compassion for myself and for the other person invites being able to hear, you know, and to create a space where we can we can reflect on what just happened there. What just happened there? Um, and f- really, again, there's a whole set of teachings. I write about them to some degree here around mindful communication because it's right speech and it's right reception, or if you will. There's a piece of it that's about how we um, create some spaciousness around this beautiful but challenging project of human communication. It's like 
you get I often say you just have one person there there's a whole radical opportunity for disagreement but certainly any two people it's our the fact of our very different positionalities of radically I mean it's like it's like almost mind-blowing the different paths that you and I for example have walked to this moment I mean I know that without knowing your whole story you know that without knowing mine is true for any two people and yet nevertheless we come together we use our words, we speak the same language, and we, in a, in a way that to me is very poignant and beautiful, this effort to communicate and connect across these radically different bases of lived experience. I like to name that whenever I try to bring people together for communication around anything. Um, and so it does touch and concern this conversation about political correctness. To me, it's really just about, you know, the language has gotten caught up in, in, in the discourse around politics. But if you just kind of unpack what's going on there, it's, it's an invitation to, to be intentional and to be in, in an intentional and dynamic conversation, and a mindful conversation, a meta conversation about how we're going to be with each other. Um, it's always got to have, for me, some element of that compassion. So it does, for me anyway, Invite a ref, you know, both um, intentionality and agency and recognizing there's some work for me to do to try to minimize harm in the way that I speak with others about these things. And in relationship with you and with others, I'm going to, you know, know that I might make mistakes. I'm going to ask for your holding of my imperfection, you know. Um, with some kindness, and I'm going to be willing to offer that to you so that this can be a more robust space where, you know, you can mess up. I can mess up. And um, though we might need to do some work to repair, we can apprehend doing work to repair. Uh, I mean, I do think that's there's a lot of brittleness that is like a legacy of some really well-intended Kind of social justice work around these topics, a lot of um, righteous and self righteousness, right? And it's um, both. I it's think all it's both. right, right, yeah. And um, you know, for me, this is again why mindfulness and and the broader project of 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 you know, let's say uh, contemplative. If, if not Buddhist, to speak to the traditions that I draw on most frequently nowadays. Um, the broader invitation is ultimately about freedom. And that for me includes freedom from even my own, you know, self-identified ways of seeing my wounds and seeing you in relationship to me, right? I mean, it's like to begin a conversation about race and racialization is – um, is is also to begin an opportunity for waking up and for deeper human human connection and for you know letting some things go actually uh, and some healing uh, and beginning again and so for me there's a flow to that there's an equanimity to that uh, there's loving you know there's all of the different. There's sympathetic joy, right? All of the different abodes, if you will, that are the kind of core teachings about what mindfulness might 
how that might live uh, in our lives. Um, you know, we want, in a certain sense, everything that I write about in, in the field of racial justice and, and, and identity-based work around mindfulness is a pathway to waking up and a pathway to freedom and joy and equanimity and and love, frankly. So, yeah, that's really what it is. And it, that isn't about Pollyanna. That isn't about bypassing. It's And I smile sometimes when I say this. People might hear the smile sometime. It is, for me, recognizing that, um, and I would be remiss, I would feel remiss if I didn't say this part. You know, every minute that we're alive is a kind of gift. And, yeah, we're going to turn towards some of the harder, uglier, the stuff that can invite some shame in this conversation gets us there. And, my goodness, it could be otherwise. We could not have the privilege of having this breath and um, on this earth, this this radically beautiful planet, right? It's all there. And to me, you know, I don't, in the work that I do, it is an invitation to go into these hard conversations, but to stay in those conversations from a place of, you know, opening up to the mystery of what it means to be alive and to the responsibility we have to help each other walk each other back, you know, home when we get kind of lost and stuck in these more limited um, senses of, of what's here and what's now. You, I asked you a question and you answered it and then elevated it to a, a different place. I'm going to just go back down into yeah, the, yeah, into yeah. The, Let's go down into okay, into yeah. the political correctness. So I, I don't know that I have a view. Uh, it's, I've done enough work to really know that I have a view, but I have just some shreds of shards of yes. thoughts. So the best arguments I've heard for political correctness, you kind of articulated. It's like this is what happens when the culture gets more heterogeneous and. Groups that it was easy to be rude to or dismissive of are saying, no, you can't call me that name. Ouch. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, that strikes me as I see the validity to that argument. And I also see the validity to the, you know, I don't, I haven't, forgive me, everybody, if I've got the poll numbers wrong here, but I think that I saw a poll number, something around like 80% of Americans think political correctness has gone too far. And, it touches on the sort of sh- shame thing that 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 it shuts down the the more constructive parts of our brain. You know, once you activate the reptile fear based part of the brain, the higher order functioning of the brain, the rationalization, the ration rational component, yeah. the reasoning part of the brain just doesn't operate as well. And so, yeah. if right. we're in an environment where all of us are, where many of us are made to feel like we're just incorrigible. Then it's 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 it becomes hard to to engage, and I think we're seeing that play out in our politics. Now. I think you're right, and and so I do know people who worry that too much political correctness just well the intention is is I think really a positive one. I think it can have really negative yeah. outcomes, and yet I still see the reason for to be careful. Yeah. Um, well, and and maybe, so it's it's yeah. tricky. Uh, it's, it's, very... it, it, it's really tricky. And then the one, one yeah. other thing I'd say is that I really liked what you talked about, the sort of common denominator here being – used a big, grandiose word, but it actually doesn't have to be. You used the word love. 
But love <laughs> can be just defined uh, in a very down-to-earth manner, which is, you know, wanting the best for, having basic goodwill basic good for will. any any I'll other with that. sentient being, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, like if you're in a situation where – I, I was listening to a Dharma talk the other night from a – a great teacher named Winnie Nazarko, who's a meditation teacher uh, in the Insight community who's got a background in social justice work. She and I don't know each other, but I was mm-hmm. listening to the talk. Mm-hmm. Shout out to you, Winnie. And she had done a lot of uh, sort of social justice work. She was a, a community organizer. Yeah. Sound a little bit Obama-esque <laughs> there. And uh, she talked about some of her – I took from her talk, and I, don't, I, I apologize, Winnie, if I'm mischaracterizing it. But I took from her talk in part some misgivings for, about the current environment on the left. And she talked about this concept of predatory listening, where I'm just listening to you <laughs> to mess up so that I can shame you. Right. And so I worry about that, too. So, I and, too. and I see the complexity. Yeah. I see. I think I see a, at least a fraction of the complexity, let's just mm. say. Um, oh, yeah. And it's hard for me to, 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 to really come to, to reckon with. Really? Is. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, and maybe this is why I do. You heard me do it. You were kind to sort of characterize it as like elevating. I kind of shift a little bit off of the specific language of political correctness. Um, I certainly understand. I I think I understand what people mean when they talk about the problem of, quote unquote, cancel culture, which is another way of thinking about this kind of predatory listening thing. It's like I'm listening and then the cancel pieces, the minute you say it, then I'm no longer or the minute you know I see this in you, then you are no longer acceptable in some way. Yeah, yeah, we're going to organize a Twitter mob, and then you yeah. you're, you're going to be deplatformed, and it, that yeah, or but, but, we're not we're going to disinvite you because you know yeah, you, we're not you are you, in the mil- yes. member of the military, which yes. happened to me. Really? Uh, yes, um, at a university school a group at a law school in San Francisco, um, a left leaning law group. Um, literally, someone saw on the resume that I had been an officer in the military and decided to disinvite me because of that. So, um, yes, I completely think that um, there is a way that um, the social justice left culture, you know, I wrote this book for for that group too. Mm -hmm. I often use mindful communication as an alternative way of talking about this specifically for this reason. Um, You know, um, the temptation to self-aggrandize and to harden another kind of identity around our our awakenings, our wokeness, or whatever, right? Is uh, is its own it's its own bait that of our time, a bait for getting hooked, a bait for getting stuck, a bait for being caught in ways that uh, you know the teachings of the Buddha invite us to to become more aware of that's true for all of us none of us is giving a pass given a pass on this in my view my humble view and and in particular i do think I, this book and what i'm what my work has been about has been about inviting all of us from wherever we enter whatever door we come in to kind of come into that same room of reflection of ethical engagement with how we want to be with each other. I use the phrase personal justice for this part, personal and interpersonal. In other words, justice to me is a, there's a kind of an ecology of what we mean by justice. It, 
apprehends work that we do within ourselves and for ourselves and with and for each other on a one-to-one. So that, to me, calls forth a commitment to the right speech, yes, but also, as best I can, right listening. And responding to, you know, the things that someone says that might make me flinch a little bit and wonder, wait a minute, was that a micro question? <laughs> to try to res- choose, recognize the reactivity and choose to respond. This is not tone policing, right? There's so many different ways that people dismiss everything I'm saying as not being, you know, sharp enough, like, you know, fierce enough for the time. Like right now we need to really push back and all these ways. And I do think um, oppression is so real and it has hurt so many people that there's reasons why people are feeling like I don't have, why, why, why is the black woman, I can hear the criticism, why is the black woman counseling compassion? Like, you know, why are we always the ones who have to go the extra mile? You don't. <laughs> it's a question of how you want to live. <laughs> you know, yes, uh, we have been, you know, we are we are up against some things in our time and place, and we're free, and we're free. Yeah, I I, I mean, I really hear what you're saying, and and uh, I think I really hear what you're saying. But, but I don't my my area my thinking about this is definitely nebulous at early stage. But I don't think I have a problem with ferocity or strength or calling things out as you see them. I think it goes back to what you said before, like where is that coming from? And having some humility and some clarity via mindfulness to like what is motivating you, you know, where is that coming from? And yeah, yeah, there are a lot of things out there. There's a lot of injustice out there. And I think that ferocity and and, um, volume uh, makes a lot of sense. I think there are a lot, but it gets... I just keep coming back to this great expression from I don't know if you do you know Ruth King? I do. Okay, so Ruth's been on the show. Um, she has. I tried to get her to call mm-hmm. her last book this, but she ignored me. But, <laughs> but it's a phrase she uses about this work, which is messy at best. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's yeah. that's where I kind of land with all this because I, I I almost every argument from on every side, I see the I see the validity. Yeah. You know, and. Again, the need for so much more nuance. Than, that, than, not to say I, I right? don't see the validity of the argument that the people in Charlottesville are making, just to be clear. But that's what I mean. Like, you know, because literally what this can be about is about um, actual vulnerability to violence and trying to protect us from that. Yeah. Um, actual physical violence on the one hand, but then there are degrees, verbal violence. Right. So nuance um, and needing to be fierce when we need to be fierce is not an excuse for right um you have uh, you have a bazooka everything is you know uh, the arrayed army in other words you have a you know a hammer everything's a nail no every it's mindfulness is about really developing over the course of our humble lifetimes as best we can no we're always going to fail um this kind of capacity to you know Act from a place of what's called for here and now, and to have that kind of skillful means engagement with what's up, um, and that's again, you know, our culture doesn't necessarily do nuance that well, 
so this and this is why I, I've been uh, drawn and so feel so um, just feel like right at home, actually, in this place of inviting for myself and with the folks I'm privileged to work with um, this deeper capacity to just, yeah, be messy is necessary. Be fierce when you need to be. Be quiet when you need to be. Uh, f- ask for forgiveness when you need to. Um, ask for permission, maybe. Like, just because being in human community is hard. It's harder than is advertised. It, you know, we call ourselves the diverse nation, and we do all these things where we bring people together. It's never been easy. It probably never will be. And so, again, a, a legacy of dominance culture is like nobody messes up. There's no conflict. Yeah, we mess up and there's conflict and we keep staying in the conversation. That's. Yeah. And I will also say just in my experience, as messy as it can be at times and as much pain as I've experienced, which is just a tiny bit of Mm -hmm. pain as I've experienced having these conversations. Life's more interesting and better with the different people around the table. Better. There's joy. For me, there's a way. Again, I smile because. That's life. It's a it's it's the aliveness that I, I don't want I personally don't want to miss on this whatever how many more passes I have around the sun on this beautiful planet. Last question, which is can you just plug the book, please? Okay, the book is called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. And it is an invitation to take any piece of that title and critically sit with it and reflect on it and challenge me and others about it, but to, to come into the conversation and um, uh, to bring what you bring. Cause I do think all of us, every single one of us, every single person listening within the scope of the hearing of this has something unique, some teaching that we all need to hear from your own particular experience. Um, and we can all learn from somebody else. And so, um, yeah, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about. And do you have a website? I do have a website now. And it is just rondavmcgee.com. And I'd love to see folks joining me there and elsewhere. I'll be teaching at Spirit Rock and Omega and Esalen, <laughs> different places this year. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm around and I'd love to be in conversation with anybody who resonates with this. Awesome. Great to talk to you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Dan. Again, big thanks to Rhonda. Always great to see her. Um, all right, let's. Uh, we got one voicemail this week. Uh, here we go. Hi, my name is Jennifer Satton, calling from Queens, New York. Um, I just finished listening to the recent podcast you had with John Kabat-Zinn, and I feel like it's the first time I heard a white man who has success in the Western world with meditation and mindfulness talk about white privilege and social injustice. And so... I found there's quite a, you know, there's a contrast with the, you talked a lot at the beginning about not doing versus doing in regards to meditation and like having a practice. And at the end, John talked about turning towards it with integrity. And I'm curious, how does social justice fit into this? And I find that a lot of white privileged people out meditation and this ability to to be inactive and to do nothing. And as we learn more about white privilege and what it means to be anti-racist and to take action and to not be a part of the oppressor, I just am 
hungry for more conversation about that and for people to be courageous and brave and like really dive in there. So I, I just want more. <laughs> if you could do more, that would be great. Thank you so much. Bye. Great question. I'm really glad you asked it. I'm going to take a shot at answering it because I think it's so important. But because I think it's so important, I also just want to give the caveat that this is something I've thought about, but not so deeply that I would hold myself as any up as any sort of expert. There is a, a rich tradition of, I think it's called socially engaged Buddhism. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is a leader in this area. There's another group called the Zen Peacemakers. Uh, Sharon Salzberg has a book coming out about uh, engaging in sort of activism and how to you know keep your head while doing that work. So there are people who know much, much, much more than I do, and we'll have Sharon come on to talk about her book, and we'll we'll get at this very issue. But let me give you this sort of cheapo version just from from me a little bit off off the cuff. So I I see an immense value in in non doing or doing nothing, but I I don't I don't think you want to live forever in a state of meditation where you're doing nothing. I just think that the the not doing informs the rest of your life, which is mostly doing or sleeping in really profound ways and makes you more effective. So I don't I didn't read John Kabat-Zinn's comments as hey you shouldn't do anything ever. I read it as periods of time where you are sit and watch sitting and watching your own mind, aka non-doing watching the mind instead of getting involved in the mind to the best of your ability because you're going to get caught up in your thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. But to the best of your ability, sitting there and watching your mind, that can really transform the way you are in the world. A couple of things can happen. One is you're less sucked in by your habitual stories and uh, dramas so that when you're out in the world doing hopefully important work, you're less reactive, you're more effective, you're better able to tune in and listen to other people. Another thing that can happen, in my experience, as a consequence of doing this, of, of not doing anything, of doing this non-doing, is that when you see how crazy you are, you understand that this is universal. We all have this mind, and depending on the conditions in which we've lived our lives, all an enormous range of results can come out of that. And so you get a sense, in my experience, it makes you just a little bit less judgmental. I'm still judgmental. I wish I was less judgmental, but I I noticed that it's taken the edge off because I know what it's like now in my own head in a little bit more with with more intimacy and hopefully with more of a sense of humor. And therefore, I'm able to not judge people and have some compassion and empathy when I'm seeing other people losing it. As it happens, just totally serendipitously, if I was a more devout Buddhist, I would maybe call it karma. As I, I, I was I, I was thinking about how I was going to answer your question this morning, earlier this morning, as before I recorded uh, this answer, and in the interim, after having thought about it a little bit, I was uh, then eating breakfast and listening to a Dharma talk by Joseph Goldstein, and he started talking about the very same thing, and he quoted uh, a Taoist expression, which is non-action is not inaction, that you can respond better out in the world if you have a clearer view, not only of your own mind, but perhaps 
as a, as a consequence of having a clearer view of your own mind, a clearer view of the overall situation, which then allows you to respond wisely instead of reacting blindly. As I said, there are many people who know much more about this issue than I do, and um, I would recommend you check them out. But hopefully that provides a little bit of clarity. I really appreciate the question. And uh, while I'm on the subject of appreciation, let me just uh, appreciate the folks who do this podcast. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omahundro, Layton is operating the boards right now. And I do want to say, um, you know, podcasters at the at this point in the show are often saying, hey, you know, mention us on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'm going to say something like that, which is that if this show or any other show is useful to you personally, to the extent that you can share it, and it really doesn't have to be on Twitter or wherever, even if it's just one-on-one, or if you're at the office talking about your favorite shows and podcasts with people, a conversation that happens all the time, a conversation I love to be part of, if you happen to just drop our name, the uh, 10% uh, you know, Happier Podcast, into that conversation, that's just really helpful to us. It helps us grow and ensures that we're going to be that, – that my team – And I can continue to do this work uh, for a long period of time, which would be great because we all love doing it. So thank you for that. And thanks to our podcast insiders who give us incredibly useful feedback every week. That's also amazingly helpful. And uh, I'll see you next week with a new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. And they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is the competition. Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember Remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam packed, music filled weekly party where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.